0: episode 127 of the Love That Album podcast. My name is Morris. If this is your first time listening to the program, welcome on board. Maybe you've discovered us because we're now on the Pantheon podcast network associated with the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. My huge thanks to the good folk down there for taking my humble little podcast onto the network and looking forward to creating some more shows for your ear holes. What we do here, the name of the Program pretty much self-explains it. Love that album. I like to talk about albums that I appreciate. I'm not here to diss on albums that I dislike. Life's too short to be wasting time doing that. So I like to talk about albums that maybe you're familiar with, maybe you're not, that I just think are a little bit worthy of attention and just really why I enjoy them. But I always like to get on a special guest onto the podcast. And this time around, I think the first time that he's here to discuss an album in length. In the past, he's been on the show to talk about his favorite albums of the year in short form but the first time in eight years that my son, Max Bishdinsky, is on the show. So welcome on board, Max.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Yes, no, this is wonderful to be doing this program with you because uh, we always have music discussions around the table or when we go out for a beer or something like that. And now let's just put it out in the ether for everyone to hear. Now, the other thing is, if you've been a long-time listener to the show, you might also realize that the theme music for the program has changed. I had been, well, let's be honest about it, thieving The replacements with uh, their wonderful song Alex Chilton. I'm in love with that song was pretty much my philosophy for this podcast and for the blog that I had before I uh, decided to make this a podcast. And, you know, I sort of thought, well, if I'm going on this new network, let's try things a little bit differently. Let's actually come up with something new and original. And so, quite appropriate that Max is my guest to talk about music on this show. He has gone and recorded a new wonderful theme for the program. I hope he dig it. He actually went and wrote the music for the other podcast that I co-host, See Here podcast.
1: Yeah, that, uh, that, that's a real old one.
0: That was originally called In the Style of a Cat Falling Down the Stairs?
1: Yeah, a name which I've sort of grown to resent. To To clear everything up, I wrote that when I was, I don't know, 14 years old or somewhere thereabouts, and I was in my stupid, edgy teenage humour phase or whatever you want to call it, disavowed.
0: It's a great piece of music, no matter what you call it, and I'm still very affectionate of its name. I think it's humorous and meant in lightness. I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway, a wonderful piece of music. Go check out the See Here podcast. If you don't want to listen to myself and Tim and Bernie talk, just tune in for the opening 30 seconds to listen to Max's wonderful theme music. Anyway, we're here to talk about an album that you've picked and you long right. said to me, I really want to come on your show, and I, for no other reason, Dad, because I want you to listen to this record mm. and I did not we'll talk about our origins with the band but the name of the album is...
1: It's Sing to God by the British Stalwart's Cardiacs.
0: So if you've never heard of Cardiacs then you're going to hear little snippets throughout the show. They're not on Spotify and there's good reason behind that and we'll be talking about that as the show goes on. You can see their film clips and probably listen to full albums on YouTube. But or
1: if you have Apple Music.
0: But we'd be advising you to go out and buy CDs and we'll get into the reasons for that. Alright, so what we'll do now is we'll go to a quick break. Joanne will give you the contact details and then we'll come back and start talking about the history of Cardiacs, where we came in and about a a style of music that until a few weeks ago I'd never even heard of but was well aware conceptually what it meant when you brought it to my attention but all that to come, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. You're listening to Love That Album Podcast, episode 127. I got a stack of records here, a stack of records there I got records scattered all over everywhere but We hope you're enjoying the show
2: You can find previous episodes of Love That Album at lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rock'n'rollarchaeology.com. all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music
1: related discussion
2: i through the records an hour or two and I've about decided what I've got.
0: Hi, I am Gunwater. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Tune. Miguel
3: Ferrer.
2: Nancy Allen. Robert
3: Davi. It's Richard Elfman.
2: Ileana Douglas.
3: Patrick Warburg. Hauser, Cliff D. Young, Steve Railsback. Mr. T. William Cass- If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011 I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com
0: And we're back from break. Morris over here. Max over there. You're listening to episode 127 of Love That Album podcast. And as we said before the break this time around, we're going to be talking about the 1996 double album Mm -hmm. from the band Cardiacs called Sing to God. Now, I have to say that this is not the first time that I've tackled an album on the show from a band that i had not known for much time before you know we came to talk about it now i'll talk in a couple of moments about how you came to introduce their music to me and what you recommended but I really want to know what was it that brought your attention to Cardiacs? They've been around a hell of a long time, Mm -hmm. but they're not exactly a household name. So where was it that you first read about them and then listened to them, and how did you go through their back catalogue?
1: It's not a particularly interesting story, but when I was... 14 or 15, I was first introduced to the cult classic band Mr. Bungle, which sort of wet my appetite for music that was maybe weird, left of centered, jumped around almost for lack of a better term, attention deficit in its approach. And for, for the next few years I'd you know just here and there I'd pick up, yeah, what's another band that does this sort of thing? So I picked up on the residents. I picked up on Idiot Flesh and Darth Vegas and other bands of that ilk. I just went looking for that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think when I was in year 11, I came across some list of the top 10 weird bands of all time, and I have my own thoughts about those sorts of lists, but... I am very grateful for this one in particular, which unfortunately I couldn't find again because it, it featured on it this band, Cardiacs, and it featured this song, Arias. I listened to it and it was this weird sort of combination of off-kilter rhythms and almost pompous, but not not exactly pompous, but somewhat grand and light-hearted and jolly music that was still very weird and dadaist in its approach. It had this phenomenal instrumental part towards the end which you know it really blew me away and then I looked them up on YouTube and I found the even more impressive tart and feathered how off-kilter all the tempos and rhythms to it are It bores its way into your head and just doesn't let go. So that's sort of where I first discovered them.
0: It's funny you mentioned Tard and Feathered. I think I might have been on the Cardiac's Facebook page this week. Or maybe it was on a forum of some sort. Someone had gone and asked the question, someone introduced me to Cardiac's and they played me this song Tard and Feathered. I'm not sure if I want to take this any further. This whole group of obsessive Cardiac's fans said, no, that's not the place place to start. If I'd heard that, that would not make me want to go any further. And then they went and made further recommendations. You start off slow. Start off with, is
1: this the life? Yeah, possibly. I mean, depends what you're looking for. Because, as I mentioned, I was looking for genuinely zany stuff, and, you know, that really stretched that itch. It felt almost like the musical equivalent of an episode of The Young Ones. It was demented, and it was rhythmically obtuse. It was punky in just how much it sort of seemingly did what it wanted.
3: Neil! What are you doing, Neil? To make a meal, Neil! Neil! <laughs> From totalitarian vegetables.
0: When you think about the closing theme of The Young Ones, that almost sounds like the sort of tune that sure. Cardiacs would have had a field day with doing as a cover version. <laughs>
1: I know we can bring up Zolo later, but it definitely does sound like it belongs in that so, and I think they're kindred spirits in a sense. The young ones is anarchic and brash, but very cleverly sort of written. There's no question that the comedy in it is very well put together and and intelligently written. But it's just so brash and in your face that I can't help but sort of see some parallels between what the young ones sort of was doing for TV and what cardiacs maybe did in their music.
0: I still would have been under 20, mm-hmm. I think, when The Young Ones was very, very big. Or maybe I'd just turned 20 mm-hmm. when The Young Ones came on television. And that was absolutely huge. No sooner had the ABC in Australia shown it on television that I think within a couple of weeks I had to repeat both seasons yet again yeah. because it was just so hugely popular. It became a big, big phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And I sort of wonder if people were ready for that on TV and yet they weren't quite ready for Cardiacs, although maybe I guess they didn't have enough friends in industry in terms of people who would review them or highly praise them. I read, I was going to come to this later, but there was a magazine called Vox Magazine Mm -hmm. and I'm pretty sure that they infamously gave one of their albums, maybe it was even this one, I can't remember, but they'd given one of their albums 0 out of 10. Now, I'm wondering whether they just thought, I'm not even going to listen to this. We know the sort of band that Cardiacs are. We don't like it. We're not going to give it any time. Now, I remember reading that Roy Carr was the fellow who was the editor of Vox magazine. I'm not placing anything on him, but Roy Carr wrote my favorite Beatles book ever or co-wrote my favorite Beatles book called uh, The Beatles in Illustrated History. That was my Beatles Bible for many, many years, but he could be very, very cutting about certain songs he didn't like or certain songs in the Beatles solo repertoire that he didn't like. So this is a guy who possibly thought, I don't give a shit. I'm going to say what I think and I'm not going to give this band the time of day. They are an acquired taste, but I think that at that time, with comedy going to new places and music certainly going to different places at that time, that maybe England at least could have been ready for a band like Cardiacs.
1: Are they actually one of those groups where they're sort of victims of maybe poor marketing? I mean, that's not to say that, you know, there weren't people out there who genuinely just thought, oh, this is awful noise, I hate it, because there definitely were. And as I'll come to later, there's a notorious story where they went on tour with Marillion, and the audience was just absolutely pelting them with any makeshift projectiles they could find. So, there were people who thought of the music as crass. I struggle to sort of get myself into a mindset of someone who would actively hate a band like Cardiacs, because as you'll come to find, this is one of those bands I just gush over on every frontier. They're interesting. They make thoroughly enjoyable music. You know, they scratch every itch that I need. So I find it hard to get myself into the mindset of a person who would genuinely hate their music. Mm.
0: We will come to that, and in fact, I think there's a good case that can be made that even though in a lot of ways they are a unique band, and certainly when they started out, there were maybe no other bands who were quite doing what they were doing, and yet there are some definite precedents in non-rock music fields for what they were doing, as well as the rock music field, but we'll come to that. I just wanted to quickly talk about my first impressions because you had gone and said to me, Listen to this album called Songs for Ships and Irons. Yeah. And then you showed me the film clip of Tard and Feathered.
1: I do think the clip you're referring to was originally filmed live on set for the BBC.
0: So I remember watching that and thinking things about them from both a visual perspective as well as a musical perspective. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of crossover. So my initial thought was, hey, these guys are like early split ends on uppers. And particularly Tim Smith's voice reminded me a lot of Phil Judd, and early Tim Finn in his approach, and their melodic approach was similar, but once again, in a lot more of a hyper sort of way. Visually, they were certainly a lot like what I remembered from the early Split Ends songs like Late Last Night, I should say the film clips Late Last Night or I See Red, and there's a lot of the jerky movements that they would do on set, and the face paint they're almost like toys in a toy box that had just yeah. been wound up or overwound. And split ends was the first thing I might have even mentioned to you at the time, listening to that album and then watching that film clip.
1: Split ends is definitely a valid comparison. I mean, as best as you can make a valid comparison to Cardiacs, because like there are numerous bands that you could liken to them in an approximating way. I've got a big list here. I'd recommend taking any of these bands that you'd like to them with a grain of salt because Cardiacs really are something of a musical anomaly with a really unmistakable sound. you got bands like, of course... Split Ends and XTC and The Kinks. Yes. Henry Cow, Frank Zappa, even Devo, Mm. who you could all make a valid comparison of Cardiacs to even Squeeze maybe to a degree in some ways. Squeeze and their bouncy are sort of cool for cats. You know, again, as I say, take any of these with a grain of salt because I think any of these bands, rather than sharing a definite musical similarity in terms of their songs sound like they could be written by the same people. It's more of a attitude similarity. Like early Devo don't really sound like Cardiacs, but when I say Devo, I mean more like they're manic and experimental and, and weird and performative and, and all that.
0: I'm not even necessarily saying that one band will sound like cardiacs does or cardiacs mm. all sound like a precedent band to them but certainly it, the word you've already used is anarchic and there's something about them that sounds like they belong in a sideshow tent at a carnival and i think you could make a case for some of these other bands having that sort of spirit so the first couple of xtc albums where yeah. they had a keyboard player barry andrews and that music is very angular uh, like i think of a song like science friction sure the spirit of what Cardiacs are trying to do. Yeah,
1: and speaking of spirit, there were a couple of bands here who came after Cardiacs who, you know, I can't say for 100% sure if they were directly influenced by them, but they feel like they sort of cut from the same mold. I think, I think like uh, the Lemon Twigs and even to a degree, not in terms of the actual sound, but there's a spiritual connection maybe between cardiacs and what thundercat does it's got the same wacky absurdist sense of humor
2: i feel weird comb your beard brush your teeth still feel
1: Very tight playing, but also very unexpected melodies. And and I think there's case to be made that there's sort of a bit of a through line, at least, between them.
0: Something that I, I think I could see a relationship between Cardiacs and Thundercat is there's a complexity to the music, but they're taking different approaches. I mean, a Thundercat is more of a jazz guy.
1: Yeah, more R&B
0: sort of jazz. Yeah. Whereas Cardiacs, I mean, this is not necessarily the case with all the material on Sing to God. And when we get to that, I do want to sort of talk about its diversity, which is something I love to do on this program. A lot of what they did early on is about maybe starting an idea then going to another idea, then going to another idea, and then bringing it all back around to where it first started. So, like, with a typical pop song, I mean, you've mentioned the Kinks, and definitely there's a connection between them. They did a great version of the Dave Davies song, Yeah, Susanna's Still Alive. (laughs) which is very carnival and very cardiac it's a perfect song for them to cover
1: you mentioned before that there's a British quality to their music I very much agree there's an like an essentially very British quality to their entire discography because like Amongst all the shifting time signatures and weird melodic directions that they take, there's a chord that feels sort of akin to traditional English musical songs.
0: Yeah, well, as we'll get to, my favorite song on Sing to God... Is very much um, a British music hall type of song, right. which is something that they share with a lot of the Kinks' music. Yeah, I mean, as well. I
1: mean, this is you know, it's called, of course it's helped along by the fact that Tim Smith has a very heavy Surrey accent, which he doesn't hide at all. You know, it's ever present, but there is a sing along sort of traditional British approach to a fair bit of their songs. There's something I feel also to like. I don't know. I just think of like a very proper major like the the quality of a of an army major and a jaunty romp pompa sort of feel to the music that lends it a british quaintness that's sort of how I just characterise that you, in my head.
0: You know what? That's really cool because you, you mentioned the young ones before, but when you go and mention a British major, I'm getting this picture in my head of uh, Graham Chapman of the Python yeah. team saying, okay, stop
3: that. Yeah, that's all well, very, very yeah, that's silly. In. I noticed a tendency for this program to get rather silly. That's exactly
1: <laughs> it. And that's, pythons are not a million miles away either. From the spirit of cardiac. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I've already gone and mentioned this by name, as have you.
1: Yeah. Let's talk. Not ab- pussyfooting
0: about. <laughs> let's talk about Zolo music now. Until you mentioned the word Zolo to me, maybe about a month ago, I'd never even heard of this expression. And after doing a little bit of reading up, it's probably for good reason because, unlike other forms of music, which when you hear the name, you sort of think, right, well, this is preordained. Or maybe the name got developed shortly after a few songs in oh, that it's style. Absolutely
1: retroactive.
0: This is this is the first time I've ever heard something that is so retroactive. So there was a, a fellow called Terry Sharkey.
1: Yep, it's uh, it's in reference to his uh, radio show, uh, which ran from a Portland College radio station from 1995. And I think for those of you maybe not familiar with what Zolo is, try to think of it less as a defined genre or a scene, more of a thread of common approaches to musical creation. Well that's what Terry Sharkey ostensibly was Mm. trying to
0: do. I found he'd written a lengthy paper. I I don't know whether he submitted it as an academic paper of some sort, but it was quite a lengthy 20, 30-page doctrine, if you will, where he was talking about Zolo music and how there was this thread that ran between all sorts of bands from the 60s through to whenever it was that he wrote the paper that said these bands I'm dubbing Zola and they all have a similar approach and yeah he mentioned some of the bands that we already spoke about like Split Ends and XTC but he took it back and Godly and Cream and Godly and Cream but he took it back further to the Bonzo Dog Doodah band which makes 100% sense Bye Bye Binoculars and Macintosh everything is just great I take elocution, learn to speak posh, but still I can't find a mate. Be popular, learn to play the guitar, in seven
2: days you could be strumming, Be sociable, learn kissing technique. Look out, there's a monster coming.
1: And another one, an artist who I'll just take the opportunity to shout out because I think he doesn't get enough accolades for what he did, Jean-Jacques Perry, a uh, French synth pioneer who was known for doing, at the time it was considered children's music, but it's, you know, these very plonky, bouncy synth tunes. It's unbearably catchy in a lot of ways and... Again, very bleepy bloopy. I'm sure it sounded high tech for the time. It's kind of quaint, but it's also very fun.
0: Well, I think it's part of a conversation that you and I were having a few weeks ago. I don't remember if it was you or me that brought this up, but what you're saying now about this sort of music being just a lot of fun, with a great precedent for zolo music would have been the music for the Warner Brothers cartoons in the 1940s and, Absolutely. and the 1950s. You watch those Bugs Bunny cartoons and you've got this music that's, Complex if you sit down and listen to it and you don't watch the cartoon, you just yes. listen to the music in itself, it still sounds bouncy and fun, and yet it, it's extremely complex. It would have taken well, a brilliant composer and the most highly trained musicians to put together. <laughs> And yet it's so much a precedent for what cardiacs do and what Zolo music is.
1: Well, ostensibly, like the reason that was, there's a phrase that people sort of use in soundtrack music called Mickey Mousing. It comes from those sorts of children's cartoons where, you know, if you had a character tiptoeing, maybe there'd be a little, there'd be a little trill on the xylophone for each footstep or a big drum hit with a string stab when a character slammed a door. And that was a part of the uh, soundtracking for those cartoons that was just as essential as including you know, more typical musical phrases. It was using the instruments as sound effects, as well as just how musical instruments are normally used. Mm. If you listen to that stuff in isolation, it sounds wacky and unfocused and all these things that you'd come to associate with Zolo. Sonically, you'd place Zolo, it's commonly placed alongside New Wave or Prog Rock or Rock in Opposition, but it's not at all averse to using sounds from other broad styles like you hear ska and baroque and synth pop and punk and dozens of others of genres, whatever fits into making the music sound... Zolo? Yeah, (laughs) Zolo.
0: I mean, look, I I think two other words that come to my mind that is something in common with a lot of music that has been retroactively defined as Zolo is staccato and syncopation. There's a lot of both of those in tunes that we define as Zolo. Now, your favorite music website is Rate Your Music, and they went and described Zolo as hyper-jerky rhythms, synthesized bleeps, polka dot, not sure what that means, polka dot percussion, zany imagery, and a Zappa-esque sense of humor.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. Rate Your Music is where I first heard about uh, Zolo as a style. Even on Rate Your Music... You can see that, which I guess is just a microcosm of the broader fact that Zolo, even amongst the relatively few genre nerds who know about it, is it's pretty contested as to what it can refer to or if it even exists. Some bands like most commonly associated with stuff like pure pop, like Todd Rundgren or, as previously mentioned, XTC, have been rustled in with the term Zolo as if bands more commonly characterized as prog like gong and gentle giant and even some of the weirder new wave bands like we mentioned devo godly and cream and barnes and barnes Mm. all of them have been characterized as solo bands and there's a similar essence at the core of each of them, but they all tend to execute the sound in very different ways, which is why I say don't think of it so much as a genre, more as an approach to music. Mm. There are bands who are, who I'd say, are sort of maybe on the edge of Zolo, like The Residents and maybe The Pop Group. Ultimately, I think they're too consistently atonal to be really lumped in with the other ones.
0: There's definitely a sense, I think, of dissonance and discord as well, though. There is. In a lot of this sort of music. But we're not talking Philip Glass level dissonance. We're still talking about bands which have a sense
1: of fun. It's fun. I think, you know, it's... It's a combination of somewhere between playful, childlike naivete and punk snottiness. Mm. It's got a hint of that fuck you Mm. attitude. But in a way, that's more indicative of a belligerent child than a genuinely angry, rebellious teenager.
0: Yep, I definitely can see that. And certainly, I think the early cardiac stuff, which we'll talk about in a moment, definitely has a punkier sound Mm. than a lot of what was to come. There's definitely something... You can go back to the beginning of Cardiacs and you can go to sing to God and you definitely know it's the same band. It's not like listening to... Please Please Me, and then going to Abbey Road and then working out that that was the Beatles at both ends. But you can definitely sort of say to Cardiacs, yeah, well, their early cassette, uh, obvious identity, and Sing to God. And I haven't listened to the final album, Guns, but you were saying mm-hmm. that that's probably as accessible as they got. So I look yeah. forward to giving that a bit of a listen.
1: We talk about the obvious precursors to Zolo, like Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, and maybe Captain Beefheart. Before song, before song
2: blues, that bitch bubble.
1: But I think also uh, I didn't see it come up that much in discussions on the topic I found online. But we need to look at Krautrock as well and the influence that Krautrock played in Zolo. The nature of Krautrock was it was particularly experimental, complex and melodically non-traditional, but in a way that felt more sonically akin to gnarly garage rock recording than an overpolished soaring prog epic style and what? like H- Henry Cow and Can mm-hmm. in particular i think you can see as direct forefathers of zolo sound
0: Over the last few years, you reignited a love of prog rock to me. I mean, I'd listened to it when I was in my 20s a fair bit, and it had sort of gone to the wayside. And you went and introduced me to Stephen Wilson and mm-hmm. Porcupine Tree. You know, we got to see Stephen Wilson a yep. year ago, which was a real treat, and to the band Haken. Yep. And I, I mean, I guess I'm sort of thinking they're not exactly Zolo, but I just sort of think of that great film clip for uh, Cockroach King. For Cockroach King, yep. There's a sense of fun with that, but I wouldn't be putting that in the Zolo camp. And you see, the thing is, once again, I know that Tim Smith has said, oh, we're not prog, we're pop, which I think is a bit disingenuous for him to say because they're not pop the way The Beatles or ABBA or there's pop elements. And we will get to this, but surely with all those complex time changes and doing things which a lot of straight pop bands can't do or won't do, he surely realizes that it puts cardiacs in a different sort of camp. I mean, maybe he'd reject the whole notion of any classification at all. Uh oh, if
2: can
0: I think at this stage let's talk a little bit about the history because I know that the Mm -hmm. the people out there listening thinking well tell us what you think of this album and we will get to that but let's just talk a little bit about the history of Cardiacs because I think that that's really really important to talk not only how it led to them recording sing to god in 1996 because they'd been around for about 20 plus years before they recorded that album but also the state of tim smith nowadays and why they haven't recorded in over 20 years although while technically speaking they could have recorded up to maybe 2008
1: they released one single in 2007
0: we'll come to that in a moment so let's just talk a little bit about their origin. so according to what i read they started out in 77
1: well actually before that okay because in 1975 while tim smith was still in school he formed a band with his two school friends mark Corthra and david philpott and you can't really find anything of it because they never had a name, but they had a punkish and psychedelic sound, apparently, and they incorporated a Moog synthesizer into their gems, which had a resounding effect on Tim Smith and his approach to songwriting.
0: So by the time they actually got round to recording, they, as he said, I think they recorded a couple of songs or a few songs or maybe a cassette or something like that, which has not seen the light of day but I think was it the first one was Obvious Identity or the first one I got to hear?
1: What happened in 77, after that original high school band he had sort of dissolved, he formed a new band initially called The Filth, and they only played one show under that name, they shortly thereafter sort of renamed Cardiac Arrest, and Tim was playing guitar and singing, backing vocals behind the short-lived lead singer Michael Pugh and they had the drummer Peter Tag, and the only member other than Tim who would remain a consonant throughout Cardiac's career, Tim's brother Jim Smith, came in to play bass which apparently he had no idea how to do at the beginning.
0: Amazing considering oh, absolutely. <laughs> what an incredible play and what a backbone a band like that needed. It really needed very, very tight, I can't say tight but loose, but certainly very tight but very stretchy sort of rhythm section that was prepared to go to this place and go to that place. And it's not like you're playing... Straight 4-4 time with a whole lot of incredible fills along the way. You're going to all sorts of places. I sort of think about it as this structured chaos. These songs, they're imagine that they're in a cage that's essentially one big rubber band. And Mm. they're going to go bounce off this wall and then it's going to throw them against the other wall. Very cartoonish.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Sounds like what they do.
1: So in 1978, they released a demo, which... To the best of my knowledge, I haven't seen any evidence that anyone has the files anymore. There's nothing listed online for it, but shortly after, they released a seven-inch single called A Bus for a Bus on the Bus. That's 1979. This was almost as impossible to track down, although all three songs from the single, you can hear them played on their live album, The Special Garage Concerts, Volume 2, by 1980 they put out their first full-length and their last release as cardiac arrest and their first thing without Michael Pugh as their vocalist, uh, which was, as you mentioned, the obvious identity... At this point, they're still very punky in nature. Short songs, lo-fi recording, and some really nasty, crunchy guitars.
0: Uh, Just a little bit of an aside here, something that I read that made me think of Daniel Johnson. Not only did they release these songs on cassettes, Mm. which is how Daniel Johnson did it, but Tim Smith thought, well, I can't afford to go out and buy a whole bunch of new cassettes. So he just found a whole bunch of his old cassettes and rubbed over them. Yeah. So <laughs> the sound quality from oh, cassettes shit. to see it is it's not great. But if you have one of those cassettes, it's a piece of history. No, I, I,
1: I oh. think those early cassettes have an endearing quality in their low fidelity.
0: And those are found on YouTube. You can get those you on can,
1: YouTube. You, you can hear all of the obvious identity On YouTube, as well as their album which came after that in '81, where they'd changed their name to Just Cardiacs, their new album, Toy World. world actually had some of the earliest sort of i don't know if we'd call them hits but like as in more as in hits within their sphere yes songs which would be you know remembered very fondly it had some of the first of those including the famous as cold as can be in an english sea their first version of is this a life Is This Life, it's more famous version you can hear on A Little Man and A House and The Whole World Window. Yes, I've heard that album. And Nurses Whispering Verses was re-recorded twice, I believe, uh, once on their album The Seaside and once on the album we're talking about today, Sing to God. Can we just do a
0: bit of an aside here? I just want to talk about a couple of albums particular. I don't want to sort of go through every album that they did, but just enough to give an idea about how they evolved. So by 1984, I think it was they evolved into the lineup which according to what I've read online was the the first great lineup. There are two great lineups the Sing to God lineup is the other great lineup Uh, because this band had a lot of people go in and out but those people who went out would often come back in. I think it was just more like I've got other things I want to do but there was no animosity as far as I could tell. But the album which I really really liked and I almost came to you and said hey let's switch it to this one but I'm glad we didn't, but still, it was worthy of a mention. From 1984, you mentioned it by name, The Seaside. And mm-hmm. that lineup had the brothers Smith, Tim on lead vocals and guitar, and Jim on bass, and Sarah Smith, who was Tim's wife. They met through the band, and then yep. they got married, I think, in 84 or 85. A fellow called William Drake on keyboards. I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this correct. Tim Tim Quay. Tim Quay? I believe so. On uh, percussion and synth and Dominic Luckman on drums. Now,
1: everyone except for Koi and Luckman were performing singing duties at that point. That album
0: apparently was also a series of demos. I mean, they'd gone and released several cassettes, which were all demo quality, demo performances. They hadn't, to this point... They did
1: recycle a number of their songs. Right.
0: I just want to say that this album had some real gems. This is probably the first thing that I heard that I thought, ah, I really like this. This has got some great stuff. So some of the songs like, Gina Lola Brigida. It's a Lovely Day have uh, an interesting focus on keyboards rather than the angular guitar that you might have heard on some of the earlier stuff. It still sounds demented like the earlier stuff. Yeah. And it's still very much cardiac. I think on a couple of these songs, Tim's voice sounds to me like Robert Smith of The Cure. Yeah, well, exactly. On that's
1: what I was... 100% I, I had it written here. The the version especially of Nurse's Whispering Verses on the Seaside has a definite Cure-ish vibe to it. Right. Smith does Smith, it would appear.
0: Yes, yes. I, I wonder. That's a rare name, though. Yeah. You, would they be related? No idea. So... One more sort of album or configuration that I want to talk about before we move way ahead to 2008, we shoot Passing to God. As I said, I don't want to cover every album, but just enough for the non-Cardiacs people out there to get a feel for who they were and what they did was in 84, Tim and his wife Sarah combined with Cardiacs keyboard player William Drake to do something more acoustic in nature, a lot more gentle in nature, and they originally called themselves Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Mr. Drake. They changed their name to The Sea Nymphs. I listened to a little bit of that. I didn't give it terribly much time, but I gave a proper listen to Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Mr. Drake, the album from 1984, Mm -hmm. and I really, really loved that. Now, the thing was, it was still very much from the compositional mind of Tim Smith. A lot of it was very complex and it was still sound like bouncing off the walls, but it was acoustic. I don't know. I don't want to say it was more laid back in vibe, because it's not. But it certainly didn't have the punky energy. To say cardiacs unplugged as well would sort of maybe not do it justice. But you listen to this, and you could still see it came from the mind of Tim Smith. In Australia, you know that one of the bands that I really, really loved through the 80s and the 90s was Not Drowning, Waving, and when David Bridie decided that he wanted to do something a little bit different, he started up My Friend the Chocolate Cake. Now, My Friend the Chocolate Cake was not not drowning waving acoustic or not drowning waving light or anything it was a completely separate project whereas you can listen to cardiacs and you can listen to mr and mrs smith and mr drake and sort of say yeah that's definitely the same composer certainly the the vocalist there's no mistaking tim smith i liked it. it showed another dimension it showed that they were willing to do something different and maybe not being burdened with success I don't know. Yeah. That's a good not being burdened with the
1: expectations of
0: success meant that
1: he thought I can do what I want. Well, you gotta mention, when talking about their somewhat lack of any real success, you gotta mention that they were DIY. They had their own label, the Alphabet Business Concern. Yes. The Alphabet Business Concern was something between a label and a, a fictionalized Orwellian business model that controlled every aspect of the band's lives.
0: Now, wasn't it something that they would introduce in stage shows? They'd act things out like someone from the Alphabet Business Concern would come on and say, right, you have to stop this, you can't play anymore until you've signed your contract.
1: Yes. it was very theatrical. It was also introduced through the Seaside Treats videotape. Okay. Which was a 20-minute sort of videotape comprising of music videos and short skits, very absurdist skits that cardiacs filmed and sort of gave out along with a goodie bag at shows. <laughs> you can find the whole thing on YouTube. Right.
0: Now, I saw something else of theirs on YouTube which looked like a long-form video, but this is way past this era. I think this is with the quartet version of yep. the band that's on Sing to God. I think they're just recording everything in a shed.
1: Uh, yeah, that's the... um. Rotten Fairy Tales? I, or or something like that. Rotten Fairy, wood, something to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tales from the Rotten Shed.
0: Before we go to take a break and then talk about Sing to God, I want you to talk a little bit about what happened to Tim Smith in 2008 because this yeah. is really you know, not a very happy story.
1: Between... 2000 and 2007, the band had, they hadn't they had released much of anything. Although, like as I said, they released a single called Ditsy Scene in 2007. And in 2008, in June, Tim Smith left a My Bloody Valentine concert. And he suffered a heart attack and a major stroke. And then he had a second stroke in hospital, which left him to this day in
0: near vegetative state. or well, because the lack of oxygen that was going to his brain as a yes, result of that.
1: Yes, if you see footage of him since then, he is wheelchair bound. He's not in a good way. And since then, you know, numerous family and friends and musicians have sort of chipped in with uh, fundraising and awareness campaigns. Uh, notably, there was the um, Leader of the Starry Skies album in 2010, which featured music Musicians such as uh, Stephen Wilson, Andy Partridge, and Max Tundra, notably also a band very close to my heart as well, Grindcore Founders, Napalm Death, released a uh, charity cover of the Cardiac song, To Go Off and Things. as a song from the obvious identity in a fundraising effort.
0: For years, we'd sort of heard that the British National Health Scheme was something that was not going to leave people in the lurch, but apparently funds had dried up. Yeah. and, And so Tim was not exactly being looked after very well by the British NHS, so it took fundraisers like this and the respect and love that he'd earned from the musicians in the British industry to go and look after him. And you know, he at least earned that much goodwill. So even if they weren't a household name and had sold millions of records, he had the respect of his peers. And th- as you said, they'd gone and done all these fundraising efforts to look after him. And,
1: and also it, it didn't hurt that in that last year, 2018, the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland rewarded him an honorary doctorate in music and composition, which had a number of well-regarded musicians covering his songs and sort of brought attention to his situation. It was mostly just a a showing of respect for this guy who'd been known for all these years as your favorite musician's favorite musician. Yeah, yeah.
0: So anyway, what we said at the beginning of the show is why this music doesn't appear on streaming services like Spotify where musicians don't earn a penny from what they do. Oh, so we tell a lie, 40,000 plays and you'll get a penny. But what the band have decided to do to help aid in Tim's medical care is so they've set up a website with all their back catalogue or a good chunk of their back catalogue The sale and I think Sing to God got released last year on double record and you can get it like that or you can get it as a CDs which is how we purchased it and all money earned from the sales of Cardiac's records and CDs and I don't know, maybe there's DVDs, I'm not sure. All money raised goes towards... I believe you
1: can get the seaside treats on DVD.
0: Okay. So, I mean, look, I'm sure that that's still not going to be enough for all his ongoing care, but it contributes in a way that something like Spotify will not necessarily do. So, if you like what you've heard in today's show and you've watched a few clips on YouTube, then Max and I would both definitely suggest that you go to the website and order yourself a copy of Sing to God on CD or record or 8-track cartridge, whatever's your preferred format, if they do that. Anyway, look, at this stage we've gone rabbited on enough about their history and about Zolo music and all that sort of thing. So, what we're going to do now is go to a quick break and when we come back, Max and I will actually talk in depth about Sing to God, the album that this show is supposed to be about. We think that you'll agree that the precursor, everything that we've spoken about will help the appreciation of the album itself in our discussion and in your appreciation of the music when you get round to hearing it. Your listeners to love that album. And I'm the creator of the Sound and the Fury podcast, a series of short programs on the music that has shaped me as I grew up in a rural and cultural backwater in Australia. In series two, which will be released over the last few weeks of 2019, I join a rock band. Well, several in fact. It's a celebration of playing an instrument and the thrills and frustrations of making a joyous racket with your mates. what happens to those dreams of stardom when the real world comes knocking you can check out the show on mixcloud at mixcloud.com forward slash the sound and the fury podcast you can follow me on instagram at the sound and the fury podcast and follow me on twitter at sound underscore fury underscore pod back from break Morris over here Max over there hello and we're going to go into detail now about our thoughts on the album under question Cardiac's Sing to God we spent the first part of the show Just talking a little bit about history, what Zolo music was and how it related to Cardiacs, but now it's time to actually talk about the album under question. Now, I make no secret of the fact that when you proposed that we do this, I found it a really scary proposition because this wasn't just an album that I could listen to and get the gist of quite easily this was an album I had to play over and over again and I wasn't mm-hmm. sure that lots of listens were going to make my mind understand it This is oh, it's yeah, complex stuff
1: yeah I think the great asset of this album is just how well it holds up to re-listens because it's not just a simple collection of good songs I mean it is that absolutely but between just how complex and tightly arranged all the songs are, the inclusion of samples, and I'm not sure if they're field recordings, but definitely samples into the music in a very interesting sort of way and between all that And the bits and pieces of the studio banter and, you know, spoken word segments, it makes for a very cohesive listen, but one that requires a lot of dedication. Mm -hmm. And I personally found, even the first listening through, while certainly I wasn't getting all that I'd end up getting out of the album, out of it in that first listen, I definitely found that the maelstrom of it all, initially appealing enough just to get me hooked and you know that in combination with the various memorable melodies that you find throughout the album which just gnaw their way into your skull it was enough to get me hooked and motivate me to listen to the album again and again and I still get more out of the album every time I listen to it
0: I mean I agree with nearly everything that you say I for me as someone who really appreciates a good strong pop melody I didn't realize the first couple of listens that this album actually had memorable pop melodies obviously with plenty of listens i realize absolutely it does but the first couple of times i wouldn't say that all i could hear was chaos but there is plenty of chaos on this record but i was thinking am i going to remember this song is this just another really well executed piece of musicianship or is it actually great songwriting and with listen upon listen upon listen I realize that for the most part, this is great songwriting as well as complex and great musicianship. And Tim Smith has said in interviews that he doesn't consider the band prog, he considers them pop. I sort of find that statement a little disingenuous because there are definitely the usual prog elements of time signature changes, speed up, slowdowns, And that's just within, so like a 10 second break, you can get five key signature changes and... How many rhythm changes
1: and it's plenty of very herky jerky. I don't think I mentioned this in the first half, but I am not as big of a prog fan as I used to be. When I was between maybe twelve and fourteen, like prog was my shit. And you know, even a bit beyond that I had a really deep love of it. I think I have grown out of a lot of the bands who I used to enjoy. What's special about a band like Cardiacs is. I don't think you have to be a prog nut to enjoy their music in any capacity. Really, I mean, yes, there's the prerequisite that prog is sort of all these words. It's complicated. It shifts around a lot. But I think Cardiacs doesn't have that level of self-importance that a lot of prog tends to do, even by this album where they're not nearly as punky or anarchic as their initial albums, they're still punky and anarchic in a lot of places, in a lot of ways. It's almost noise rock in places. It's fun music, but it's also music to definitely be taken Seriously, And you don't need to be a prog nut or anything to enjoy that. Holds up for pretty much anyone, I'd imagine. Well, we were speaking a lot in the first half about what
0: Zolo music was and why we think Cardiacs could be chairman of the Zolo board. The thing that I came to appreciate a lot about Sing to God is Zolo, if you want to define it as that, is only a portion of what this album is about. Whereas probably it was from my limited number of listenings of the earlier music it was a good chunk of what came before this album is hugely diverse which if you've been a long time listener to this show you know that that's something that i really latch onto on to a, on a record and the beauty of this album to me is that yes there's a complexity but there are also some great pop moments but it still all hangs together cohesively and even The poppiest of pop melodies on this album still sounds like, yep, that's a cardiac song.
1: You sort of bring up the point that the album works its best as a whole, despite it does have many, many standout tracks, but there's plenty of songs, and I'll mention this later, plenty of songs of which I think you're not going to get the full experience if you don't hear it in the context of what came before it and how it leads into the next track.
0: Yeah, well, see, this is where I'm sort of going to maybe disagree a little bit. I definitely think that certain songs can be appreciated. We don't tend to do the song-by-song breakdown as such on this program. I want to take the approach here of talking about some of the themes on the album and sort of give examples of where those themes hold up. Probably one other thing that we should make mention here is the lineup of the album. We spoke in Mm -hmm. the first half about the first classic lineup, uh, the seven-piece lineup. Now, there are a lot of additional musicians who come in to do little bits and pieces but the basic quartet which i think gives the band a more ferocious sound in some ways the lineup is once again jim and tim smith the core of the band who'd been there from the beginning and through to the end new collaborator John Poole, who also co-wrote some of the melodies with Tim and yep. from what I read Tim was overjoyed to have someone yes. come and make that contribution and how many bands can you think of where you have an established songwriter is happy to have someone come in and help share that well, songwriting load well,
1: essentially at the point that they were making this album they hadn't released anything in 3 years by that point and Tim just had a back catalog of all these varied ideas and I think John Paul as well as contributing his own songs he helped sort of pull them together into this cohesive album. He might have been something of an arranger I suspect. Yes yeah. yes well that's yeah that, mm. that, that's what, exactly what he was.
0: And the other member of the quartet was drummer Bob Leith, who also played a part in writing some of the lyrics yep. on this album. Uh, we'll probably get to individual musical contributions as we sort of discuss some of these songs. Now when I first heard the name Sing to God, I thought, okay. And being a double album, you often sort of think, all right, is this going to be like a double concept album? Is this going to have religious or sacrilegious themes? But yeah, yeah. apart from one line in my favorite song on the album, which yeah. we'll get to later on, there's nothing really overtly religious, I think, about any of the lyrics. Although I also, i got to say right at the outset, I do not pretend that I understand a lot of what the lyrics mean. I wouldn't sort of go comparing Cardiacs to Bob Dylan, but certainly there was that period of Dylan's, say from Highway 61 Revisited through Blonde on Blonde, where people were sort of scouring every line of every lyric. What does he actually mean? And there are academic departments and universities that devote whole courses to trying to decipher what he's meaning. And I think if they wanted to do the same thing with... Tim Smith's, in this case, Bob Leith's lyrics, they could easily do so. I don't pretend to understand a lot of what is being sung here. I think there are some moments where I think, alright, I'm getting an overall feel, but I'm just wondering
1: is he having fun with words or does he know? It's funny, this album in particular, it's not uncommon if you read the lyrics before you listen to a piece of music, if you see the lyrics just on a sheet of paper, you just have a reaction of, okay, I have no context for this. It just looks like a jumble of words because you don't know the stanza you don't know the way it's going to fit in so you know it it won't hit as hard as it does in the music and that's definitely the case here you know because I didn't really look at the lyrics until I'd listened to the album maybe 10 times
0: look I could see that that's probably a good move because in a way with songs like these maybe As a listener, you don't necessarily need to appreciate all what's being sung, and I consider Tim Smith's voice to be an instrument, rather. And just the words are his way of using that instrument.
1: Well, yeah, that's a good approach. It's like... I'm fairly good at separating that thing because if you've heard my previous appearances on the show where I was just talking about my favorite albums, you'd know I'm big into a lot of music where you can't necessarily make out the lyrics. <laughs> uh, so the the vocals, I'm talking like a, a lot of metal and, and hardcore and that sort of stuff. And in a lot of those cases, the vocals are less a means of telling a story or anything like that. They're used as a percussive device. Either percussive or just they work as an instrument. I think that provided a foundation for me to view the vocals on this album through. They just sort of washed over me. They told the story more of the music than of the lyrics in question.
0: Mm -hmm. So I want to run this by you. I sort of see this album. I'm going to make a comparison now to another album that was discussed on this program Mm -hmm. and that's spilt milk by jellyfish okay i wouldn't necessarily go and say that jellyfish have a similar sound necessarily to what cardiacs do but the reason i make the comparison between this album and that album is it was my contention that spilled milk it's basically a nightmare, if you will. And it starts okay. off with the lullaby Andy Sturmer singing this beautiful song. It's very quiet, and it's singing, Go to Sleep, Little Darling. then the rest of the album is this great big nightmare of suburbia, of everyday expectations on one. And this album starts off in a similar way. I mean, I I guess you could also make that link to the Beach Boys' Smile album. That also starts with with Our Prayer and then launches. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's an album about a nightmare, but I love that approach of the calm before the storm, to use that well-worn phrase. And I think that this album, which... Starts off with a short-term Eden on the air. Mm-hmm. Prime, that's definitely the calm before the storm that's going to come. So I like to think of this as also one big dream, and that would sort of maybe make some sense in my mind to the lyrics which I can't necessarily comprehend and I've decided right I'm going to put that in the Tim Smith instrument basket but often when we think about dreams or nightmares they don't make sense to us we have things that happen that would never happen in our everyday world but it makes sense while we're dreaming them and I just sort of make that connection I think this, this album is about a dream or a nightmare at least that's how I'm going to look at it.
1: Given that apparently the album itself was named after a book they had lying on the ground in the studio or in a rehearsal space, I, th- well, I
0: think it was John Paul's child's book or something like that. He had yeah, like was, this little, little. It was it was a
1: hymnal, yeah, a child's hymnal. It's often used as a thing that children will be read from or read before they go to bed. That's an interesting parallel you bring up, and I guess that also plays into just how you know well the album flows and it does get quite dark in places it gets very dark and very chaotic
0: and how i'd like to approach the rest of this discussion while we're talking about songs is to talk about stylistically where they go because i've sort of made some pairings where i think right here's a couple of examples of one thing that they Mm -hmm. do and here's some examples of another thing That they do but just sort of focusing on the opening of the album you know the prayer before going to sleep and then the nightmare boom it just opens up and even though i've already gone and mentioned that this album is not all a case of zolo there are elements of it but certainly the song that sort of says hey kids your worst nightmare is here ends up being the second song on the album after this quiet Come before the storm in Eden on the air. The song is called "Eat It Up, Worms, Hero."
1: It's interesting how Eden on the Air, it does provide a fairy tale like sort of nursery rhyme quality, but it's got this pitch-shifted choir in the background. Sounds a bit like Alvin and the Chipmunks. A little, and it's angelic, but it's also typically cheeky in a sort of cardiac way. It's a nursery rhyme, but not as you know it. Yes. And and the way it sort of leads into Eden Offworm's Hero is it's tonal whiplash. Uh, Which is, you know, a phrase I'll probably be using a fair bit when describing the various tracks, because that's a specialty of theirs. Eat It Up, Worms Hero, you know, just starts in with this count-in, this fast, you know, drums clicking together, count-in, and then just this massive attack of noisy, big guitar, like a wall of sound guitars. What follows is this um, Zappa-esque manner of um disparate and equally frenzied musical ideas just sort of coming just bashing into one another without you know just bashing into one another in some sort of unholy matrimony almost in in some ways it's a least typically cohesive song on the album if you look up cardiacs you'll hear this phrase come up a lot they have more ideas in one song than most bands have in their career and this song, and while usually they pride themselves on you sliding from one idea to the next in a very cohesive sort of way, this song really revels in just giving you that whiplash that I described before. I remember listening
0: to this umpteen times before trying to work out, what is that opening time signature? And it took me before I worked out, oh yeah, that's ten eight. Yep. So you get this opening thing of ten eight of the guitars and then ten eight of rhythm, well, I guess, of the strings being muffled.
1: It's a muted uh, guitar rhythm on what sounds like probably a strat or something with hot output going through a tube screamer or something to that effect because it's got this just roaring a very rhythmic you know, factor to it and it sounds
0: big. If this song were to be a Broadway musical of some sort, then I would classify Eat It Up, Worm's Hero as being like the overture because an overture, when you think about it, is as solo as it gets because it's different bits and pieces. As you said, this does sound cohesive in a way, but... It's a million ideas that they sort of thought, oh, let's all just slam these together. This is the song with the multiple time signature changes. This is the tune that has multiple ideas and think, oh, no, we won't go with that. Let's go over to this. Let's go over to that. Mm -hmm. And it does end up being circular. It does end up going in a fade out with the same theme that it started off with. This is frenzied and cohesive, and it's quick and absolutely chaotic. Another element that I could link this to is with the vocals, there's this operatic vocal style that's used in parts of this song. And I'm not sure if they're deliberately trying to invoke Queen during their early period, but there's something of that grand operatic style that Queen had done up in you know, maybe the first three or four albums or so. Cardiacs were game changers and they influence a lot, but I also like to think that they took on things that they liked and said, yeah, we can make this our own. Oh, no no question. Another aspect about that song, as well as being dark and nightmarish, it also invokes the cartoonish nature of a lot of what they did. I think we mentioned in the first half of the show... Mickey Mousing. Well, yeah, Mickey Mousing. And in particular, I was referring to Warner Brothers cartoon music, the the music of Carl Stalling.
1: Yeah, well, you can hear it and it has this, you know, there's just this one part in the song where there's this like small panic sort of sounding xylophone break before it resumes back into a really atonal and fast paced phrase. (laughs) then it strips back some of its atonality to become the next, you know, repeated
0: phrase. And we as longtime admirers and lovers of old cartoons we're so brainwashed into hearing the xylophone or the vibraphone being used as a cartoon soundtrack instrument so that's why that moment does sort of remind me heavily of cartoons and particularly the warner brothers stuff because of the cartoonish nature of that i was sort of thinking of another couple of songs on the album which i know you're big fans of Mm -hmm. and let's sort of go on to insect hoofs on lassie which is also to me very quirky jerky pop (laughs)
1: Check hoops and lassie it, it's a waltz it carries a waltz feeling you know what it took me a few lessons before that actually hit me a
0: waltz is probably the easiest of all non-4-4 time signatures to be able to identify and yet i think the instrumental bits at first are 3-4 and then when he moves into the verses it goes into 6-8 which still yeah. has that waltz feel but it didn't hit me at first, hey, this is a waltz, because it, once again, cardiacs don't do anything conventionally, and it's like, boom, bop, bop, boom, bop,
1: The it, rhythm is more of a ba-da-ba-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-ba-da-ba-ba. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it, it carries a waltz feeling, and, it's, uh, and I'd say also one of the poppiest songs on the album. One of the interesting aspects to it, I find, is um, it's got what I'd call maybe these... For, for lack of a better phrase these sickly sounding synth lines one thing
0: that I really admire I've never been able to get my head around how really well skilled composers can do this is the juxtaposition of two time signatures against each other and you mentioned that little synth bit there so while they're playing in 6-8 the rest of the band are playing in 6-8 but the synth which I'm presuming is being played by John Poole, so playing four four yeah. against
1: six eight. Well, yeah, yeah. That's a polymeter which they incorporate in a few tunes on, on this album actually. Mm. That was the one that stood out to me because one thing I will
0: say about the production of a lot of this album is it's necessary for what they do and it sounds like a great production in a lot of respects, but I also admire where I can hear every single thing that's going on. And in this album, a lot tends to get muddled in its way, but that's, I guess, the nature of this being very chaotic music. Yeah. and But this is one case where, to my simple ears, I could pick, alright, there's that polyrhythmic playoff against each other, the synthesizer against the rest of the
1: yeah, band. Yeah, well, of course, because that synthesizer l- line that sort of introduced towards the end of the song that, that you were talking about, you know, you've got the waltz feel of the rest of the song, but then, you know, as soon as this uh, synthesizer line is Introduced shortly thereafter, the rest of the band sort of follows suit and plays that same line.
0: This is probably going to be one of the few cases where I do mention the lyric a bit, not because it's any more or less easier to interpret than anything else on the album, but it just seemed quite humorous to me. It sounds like it's being sung from the perspective of a bug or a bee or something that's watching the TV and admiring Lassie shows. We've heard songs where you might have someone who is telling a story, but they obviously have no relationship as a singer to the character that they're singing. So Paul Kelly has often gone and sung songs from the perspective of a woman mm-hmm. or you might have someone who sings a song from the perspective of a different nationality, but I don't think I've ever heard a song sung from the perspective of a bee watching a television show about a dog. What about Louis the Fly?
3: <laughs> Louis the Fly, I'm Louis the Fly, straight from rubbish tip to you.
0: Well, yeah, actually, yeah, that's that's a good point. I hadn't, I'd forgotten about Louis the Fly. Poor dead Louis,
2: Louis, Louis the, the fly.
0: fly. A victim of Morty. Morty. We mentioned in the first half about the young ones and the Python team and this song, this lyric sort of goes with that sense of the absurd. Sure. Another song that I think also fits into the cartoonish quirky pop, there's another one that I know that you're a really a big fan of called Bell Clink. In my
1: sort of a sibling song. It comes right after another tune called Bell Stinks and it's one of the punkier entries on the album. You know, if you break it down to its components, it's got a uh, energetic hard rock sort of guitar backing that sort of gives way to their more wonky and uneven time signatures and towards the end it even introduces a more stilted and somewhat atonal guitar riff into the mix it's a short tune as well but it's... once again with a ton of ideas
0: oh absolutely listening to this and you've gone and said that this is ridiculously fast but i didn't check online to see whether there was any live performance footage of them doing this this is a sort of song which i imagine they probably played even twice as fast live a lot of bands they play songs fast in the studio but that's only because they want to have some sense of cohesion or whatever but live they just really go nuts so i'd be interested to see whether there's any mm. live performance footage on youtube or anything like that we've spoken about the quirky pop nature of a couple of songs i want to sort of speak for a little bit about a few of the songs on the album once again to show the diversity of the band that to me is just out and out great i don't know if you'd call it 60s influence pop or maybe their take on 90s brit pop There's a reason that I think it was um, Blur said they were a massive influence on them. You know, I was going to make mention... As did Radiohead. Yeah, well, you see, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Because I hadn't heard a whole heap of cardiac songs prior to this album that I would have thought, oh, yeah, that sounds like Blur. So I'm wondering, in a way, like this song, Man Who, which sounds very much like a Blur song. Was that their tribute to Blur or them saying thanks very much for citing us? Was that their way of saying thanks or was it just no this is what we do and now Morris you're finally catching up to it? I think Man Who has a particularly XTC sound to it. I don't know for me I think where Man Who sounds to me like a Blur song and I was trying to think is this just this feeling I get or is there definitely a precedent and then it hit me Man Who has the same sort of walk along the street feel as end of the century. And if you want to talk about other precedents, then there's the Holy Trinity of. Or, or, or mind you, this will actually maybe make a link to XTC as well. So there's the Holy Trinity of the Beatles, the Ruttles, and the Dukes of Stratosphere. dc slash dukes of stratosphere and that's something that really really appealed to me and that's probably my familiarity with those songs is what made me a huge fan of the feel of man who i guess with songs like uh mole in the ministry and pig in the middle which are deliberately psychedelic pastiche and i'm the walrus is genuine psychedelia i'm just wondering whether that's tim smith's raison d'etre on this song and in in general it's psychedelic in nature and it's not supposed to make sense to on a casual listener it's just a fevered dream like those songs are but I love the shuffle feel of this it's a great pop melody once again i'm not sure if it's a pop melody via way or 60s pop melody via way of 90s brit pop or it's his tribute to the real thing but either way it's a favorite song
1: for me it's interesting when you mention man who i think you have to also mention its sibling song odd even yes which appears on the uh, second album. Mm-hmm. A few things which sort of tie the two songs together. They both sort of start off with these this mid-pace, punchy acoustic guitar line, but most notably, they feature an identical keyboard solo in them. Yeah. I hadn't actually sort of picked up on that. Yeah, there's... Uh, They both have this plonky sort of off-kilter keyboard solo. You know, you listen back to it. I I didn't notice it the first few times I listened to it, but it's the exact same one, and it's a callback. A lot of bands will make an album where they repeat a phrase from an earlier song or have one callback. I'm forgetting the word, but one particular piece of... Like a musical sentence that gets repeated, but here... They've got a full keyboard solo, which is repeated, you know, verbatim. And it's just sort of a way of subconsciously tying the two songs together into your mind. Sure. You mentioned the Beatles. In Odd Even, it's got mm, a somewhat Strawberry Fields-ish orchestral phrase backing up the acoustic guitar in places. If Man Who was more like
0: 90s Britpop pop or at least a a filtering through that of 60s pop, then I'd say that Odd Even is their direct tribute to 60s pop. And the first thing that came to my mind was the kinks. But I found that there's a drum fill at one point, which sounds very Ringo-esque. It must have been one. I can't think of what Beatles song it actually specifically came from, but the Cardiacs are not the only band to take this drum fill. If you go back to Tears for Fears, Sowing the Seeds of Love. That same drum fill, Mm -hmm. exact same drum fill is used. And back then we thought, oh yeah, that's got to be a tribute to the Ringo style. I think even on this song, Tim Smith's vocal sounds like he's taking a Ray Davies approach. I'd almost be interested in hearing Ray do it. Although
1: it it does uh, at one point it devolves into this somewhat like uglier version of itself where he starts almost grunting truth is a lie truth is a lie over and over before entering a sort of more exhausted, sort of sickly sounding section where Tim seems to be barely singing above a whisper. Yep. uh, Filtered through, like, tremolo effects. So, you know, obviously he's using his voice as a very versatile sort of instrument to give the different sections of the song different ways, not just singing the same way the whole way through. One size doesn't fit all. Yeah, Mm. exactly. Which is very possibly why... Mike Patton cites him as an influence because that seems to be his exact thing that's what he loves to do in his music he doesn't just want to belt throughout a whole song or you mentioned in the first half of the show how
0: your love of Cardiacs came after you'd already been a fan of the great Mr. Bungle mm-hmm. so It seems that from a vocal approach, there's that commonality and Mike Patton liking that diversity. But I went and re-listened to first Mr. Bungle album in the last week. Mm -hmm. And musically, they share obviously a lot of common ground, I think, with Cardiacs. And yet, I still had it in my mind that that Mr. Bungle album was a lot more frantic than what it actually was. And I think the Cardiacs would have given them... A run for their money in terms of how chaotic it actually sounds. There are some moments on Mr. Bungle album that sound almost relaxed.
1: You want the more frantic stuff? Go to the second Mr. Bungle album, Disco Volante,
0: which I haven't heard.
1: Which you know, I'm going to be controversial. It's my least favorite of the three. I think the self-titled and California. Uh, ten out of ten albums, both for me, they're just so good. Mm. Disco Volante, I definitely like, but it's closer to a seven and a half,
0: maybe. That's still not bad. While we're still talking about Cardiacs as pop band, another song that works really well in that regard is Belly Eye. think this is one that you consider a big favorite yeah
1: i don't know if you'll agree with this but like a lot of it's built around this opening riff which to my ears it sounds like it was recorded on a hot strap or something and it's got a certain quality to it that's almost country-ish for me would, would you say you see that i'm not necessarily sure that i get the the country link but go on well, like, it's got something in the way the uh, riff is played. Maybe it's just that I've come to associate that hot strat sound with with a, you know, chicken picking country and all that, but that riff it just sounds to me like it maybe could have been a bastardized version of a Merle Haggard. Okay. I don't know. And, you know, it breaks up these... Twangy is not the right word, but I can't think of anything better. Mm. It breaks up these twangier verses with a more operatic refrain during the chorus over this repeated organ note. I think it's also mirrored in, in how Tim sings the verses. He's doing less of his thick British accent. He almost sounds like he is trying to channel a country singer. Make no mistake, it is a euphoric pop song, essentially, but I don't think I've seen anyone really make any connection between this song and up-tempo country, but that's just how I hear it.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's fair enough. This is a song I feel a little bit of frustration with, because it starts off, to my ears, it's just pop, and, or rather, it starts off as pop, it starts off like one idea. Now, we've already gone and made mention that there are moments on this album where it goes bounces from idea to idea but i still think that on a lot of those songs they say right well we're still going for the verse chorus verse chorus bridge structure but it takes you a few times to realize this this song starts off one way sound like it's just going to be a good straight ahead pop song and that is never a dirty word or a dirty concept but then it goes somewhere completely different and in some songs that's okay but I thought no I liked the ideas musically that you were putting down in the first half of the song and I think it sort of went to a complex place that for my ears was needless so it starts off great and I'm just not crazy about how it finishes I mean it's Still very, very skilled, but just as a piece of listening to me, it's not sort of one of my favourite moments on the album.
1: Again, you've got to think about this album works best as a whole, and if you said it yourself that it's supposed to be a nightmare or a maelstrom or whatever, That's true it's... Too. It's going to throw all these things at you, and you can't expect the expected with Cardiacs. And you know, this would absolutely make the basis for a very good, you know, more straight ahead pop song. That's not what that's not really what I want or what I'd hope to get out of an album like this. And I think I really like the direction it sort of goes in.
0: I'm not saying that is overall for the album, I'm just saying on this particular song, I'd have just liked to have heard it, and it's still got a wonderful number of musical ideas that would still make it i think appealing to yourself and to other Cardiacs fans who say we like the complexity you want simplicity go listen to something else and there are other songs where they have a multiple of ideas i mean like we already spoke about eat it up worms hero which is nothing but pure chaos Mm -hmm. all over the place, and i love that but it says right from the ground, these are the rules for this song. We're going to start off with this, we're going to end off with this, and we're just going to bounce all over the walls for the rest of the song. And okay, I thought, right, okay, I got it. Even in chaos, we have a rule. And in this song, it sounds like it's going one place. For me, the second half of the song doesn't work. But it's a it's a small quibble on an otherwise you know fantastic album. And, it, and that first half of the song is so melodically interesting to me, and that's why I wanted it to continue in that vein, or at least work its ideas around that motif that we hear at the beginning of the song. Mm -hmm. Because we've gone and spoken so much about the chaos Mm -hmm. and freneticism that is Cardiac's and it takes place on a lot of this album, ethereal is not necessarily a word that you would think of when you invoke the name of Cardiac's. And yet there's a pair of songs that I think it's quite appropriate for. In one case, it's like, I think, a five and a half minute song and the next one, it's an eight minute song. Mm -hmm. And you never get tired of either of them in fact the first song i want to sort of make some reference to is the last song sort of on the first album and that's a song called wireless
1: It's an interesting one because it's a reimagining of a more acoustic track by German krautrock band Faust, and I'm going to see if I can pronounce this correctly. I'm sorry to any German listeners Lauft heißt das es Lauft oder es kommt bald Lauft or as it was shortened to in a later compilation just called Salter but it was originally on the 1974 album Faust 4 have you had a listen to the original Faust track?
0: No I have not
1: Did you know that this was a I
0: had no idea this is why I have you on the show
1: It's maybe not a direct lift but it's very Got a lot of structurally and the melody pretty much the same. It's more how Cardiacs took it and reworked, you know, not just the lyrics, but the texture of it all. The original one is mostly centered around this acoustic guitar mm-hmm. with a bit of synthesis over it, whereas wireless is largely electronic. It also sounds like it's got some
0: sort of just like a, I'm not sure if it's a cabasa or it's got some sort of shaker that becomes more apparent at the front of the song and at the end of the song. Maybe not so much during the song; it gets sort of uh, faded out or mixed out. But you get the sound
1: of what sounds like the night sky. Well, that's interesting because what I heard was it's like, it's this rhythmic stereo sample sort of switches the ears between each beat, but it sounded to me like I can't hear it as anything except uh, hairdresser's scissors. Is that what it is? I don't know if it is, <laughs> but that's what it sounds like to me.
0: Look, it's a beautiful tune it I'm not sure. I mean, you're more of an expert on this than I would ever be, but do you think that the melody here is based on an Eastern scale? It sort of sounds like that to me. I'm not sure, to be honest. Okay. But it's very, very hypnotic. You've got this melody that's repeated over and over and over again, and you imagine in some cases, if you weren't used to this sort of thing in in the pop realm, you'd think, oh, let it be over. And yet... I didn't want it to be over.
1: It's a really good way of leading us out of that first album. Towards the end of it, the instruments die down and it becomes more of a spoken word piece, like easing us out, but those scissors or whatever they are, they stay there, like, right until the end. And then you get that little orchestral epilogue, which... I would have liked it to
0: have just faded out, but you know it's not my project. it's Tim Smith, Jim Smith, John Poole, and Bob Leith's project. So mm-hmm. but just as a listener, I like that it sort of faded out with Tim almost whispering those words at the end. Yeah, but there's a really gorgeous, hypnotic sort of track who would have would have thought ethereal and that's a 12 8 track i managed to count yep. that one correctly the other song this is less ethereal but it's majestic and it's certainly and it, it mm,
1: is directly following on from Wild.
0: yes it is well the first song on album two this is called dirty boy
1: This is the one that people are tuning in. They're probably hoping we have something interesting to say because this is like seen as a golden child or the the poster boy for the not just the entire album, but it's seen as like it's the centerpiece. The, it's the centerpiece of essentially Cardiac's career, almost. It's the one that everyone keeps on talking about because. It's best known for its sort of long, ever-crescendoing form. The track largely builds on this one phrase, which it just keeps on modulating over and over and builds to like an almost operatic climax with a seemingly impossibly held long note over the bombastic sort of instruments. Yes, very much. I I also really like how the track starts. It starts with this triumphant major chord played on guitar, which it rescinds very quickly by playing its more menacing minor iteration. Mm.
0: When I first read that Radiohead were big fans of Cardiacs, and I thought, I don't see the connection how Cardiacs would have been an influence on their sound, but this sounds like the great song that OK Computer should have had. I mean, that's not belittling OK Computer, it's a great album, but Mm -hmm. this sounds like it should have been the centerpiece of that album and you've already gone and used the word you know grandiose which this song is and it starts off with this identifiable melody and it sort of sounds like this is uh, i I want to find a way to say this without putting it in a bad way because i love this song to bits but it almost sounds like tim is walking in one direction with this a melody and then think i'm going to go to this chord no i don't want to go to that chord and it doesn't seem to have in the sense, in the traditional sense well, it doesn't have of pop songwriting. It does, it, exactly. Because, it doesn't have a home yeah. until he gets to that bit towards the end of the song with that impossibly long note, and they've found home.
1: I hadn't really considered it until now, but I sort of always got a um, prodigal son- sort of feeling from the song the whole you know we will praise him and and the sort of not meandering but the slow ever crescendoing form it just gave me this feeling of the prodigal son who had not returning home after many many years away it, it feels like an epic journey followed by a triumphant return mm-hmm. and and it's hypnotic you don't notice that it's eight minutes long In own
0: way this is the element that it has in common with wireless it's hypnotic it's a very different sounding song but this is why i thought yeah this is a good pairing of songs i think it's completely logical that dirty boy follows wireless there's a uh, chamber music composer contemporary chamber music composer called martin vorveld and I read something that he had gone and said about this tune. He said, it's a purgatory Marlarian symphonic movement, cleverly disguised as a rock song. Now, my simple mind, um, what does he mean by that? But I think you know, we all know that you know, Marla wrote this grandiose mm-hmm. sort of music. And this is grand. This is stadium. And in that regard, if that's what it has in common with Gustav Mahler, then fair enough. I've also read this described as a fairground ride exhilaration. And that is something that I thought, okay, I can identify. This is the sort of song, especially by you get the time you get to the end and you're on a ride or something like that and you just feeling so happy so exhilarated you read expressions like that and you think oh is it pretentious but for my money i think they actually hit the nail on the head that really speaks to me about this song and i I could listen to this song over and over and over again in fact i have this is one song that i really will take away the most probably from Mm -hmm. from this album
1: and you're definitely not alone because this one is a fan favorite
0: it's the sort of song that if it were maybe uh simpler and melodic structure and I'm not saying it should be but if it had been simpler and melodic structure it's a sort of song that you might imagine if they were a stadium type of band if they were playing in front of 10,000 people that this is the sort of song that everyone would be singing in the audience at the top of their lungs this is the only one that they can sing at that pace everything else is way too fast to sing along to but this is the one song that everyone would sing at the top of their voices and when they get to that final perfect note. Mm. Just while we're talking about this, just it, it makes me think... Now, you're a fellow Who fan. Mm. Now, you know that Who's Next was basically the aftermath of Townsend's Lifehouse project. The whole idea of in, in Lifehouse was the character was looking for the perfect note, and they sing about it in one of my favorite Who songs, Pure and Easy, and they're searching for this note, and by the time they get to the end of the Lifehouse story... This ridiculous notion The whole crowd Is going to find that note And they're going to sing And then they're going to Burst into oblivion And I almost sort of think that In this song That final note Which goes on forever Is like they've You were saying before it's a song that's searching for a home. They find home. They've found that perfect note. And I imagine that Pete Townsend would listen to this and think something like, bloody hell, I should have included this in Lifehouse. It's not a who like song, but it exhibits what I think Pete Townsend was going for in writing his Lifehouse story. Sure. I think before we finish off our discussion, we've still got a couple of more songs that we wanted to talk about. And I don't see this as a pairing apart from the fact that these are the two songs that are left. So you first, talk about your love of... Angleworm
1: Angel. <laughs> I can say about this song that wouldn't be retreading a lot of the ground that I've already set. I just think it's a fantastic song, like a real highlight for me. It begins with this sort of warbling, sickly sounding synth. That's the sea shanty moment. And then, you know, it just instantly speeds up and introduces vocal melody over this fast, rhythmic, tuneless, you know, muted guitar pattern. It it raises the tempo and introduces the vocal melody over this a fast rhythmic tuneless guitar pattern is just you know digging into the chords again with that sounds like it's going through a tube screamer effect or something like that it's reminiscent to me in in a way of an earlier cardiacs tune which i first heard on songs for ships and irons called burn your house brown it's you know while burn your house brown is not quite as fast it's also built on that chugging fully muted guitar pattern which this song doesn't it's very energetic but it's also quite dark. Big fan. It, I'm sorry to
0: disappoint you this is probably my least favourite song on the whole album. I mean really? once once again, I, I, I think you've already sort of gone and hit the nail on the head though with what you love about it is that it's not necessarily conventionally melodic. I mean, At the beginning of it, we hear what I've already described as a sea shanty feel, and I think, okay, I know the direction this is going to go. In. And the sea shanty sort of feel is something that Cardiacs had previously done on earlier albums. And I don't know, I, I, once again, I don't want it to sort of seem like I can't be taken to unexpected places because there's a lot on this album that does go to unexpected places that I really do love. But it's just not melodically something that I can dig my head around. Yeah, I appreciate it's got technique out the kazooie, but that's just, for me, not enough to really hold this song together. It's not one that I remember and probably my
1: least favorite moment on the album. You know, I I just like the heights of just how bombastic and, you know, fast this song gets towards the end, underneath that repeated vocal, melodic refrain. It's euphoric for me, in in a lot of ways. An indescribable quality that sort of comes from the juxtaposing of this, you know, very tuneless but very driven and heavy, muted guitar riff. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, it's, it's almost like a callback to the you know, shanty feel of the original bit because it's got that wobbly feel in the chorus, but it doesn't lose any of the speed or pure attack that built up in the verses. <laughs>
0: I want to move on just to the final song I wanted to discuss, and that's probably going from my least favorite moment on the album to my very favorite moment on the album. And we've sort of gone and mentioned the word playful mm-hmm. a bit in this, and the song Dog Like Sparky is as playful as this album gets. This to me is a great children's sing along song apart from what's the line, put your hand put on... Put your the,
1: hand on the holy Bible and scream wank.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'd, I don't know that I'd be playing that on Play School or Adventure Island or whatever modern children's TV shows are. No, it's childish, but it's petulant. I actually sort of see it in two realms. There's the great children's sing-along type song, but also I hear this song as being very music hall. and we spoke earlier on in the show about the very British sound and this to me is a very British sounding song when they get to the chorus singing about dog like Sparky it sounds like there's a bunch of people standing around a piano on a Sunday evening in the English parlour, everyone holding a beer, arms around each other, someone sitting at the piano and playing this great song, very British music hall. I'd certainly like to hear if it had been uh, the- differently arranged and maybe put in a
1: TV show about that period. Oh, interestingly, it would work. interestingly, the piano part I found reminded me of a particular madness song and I had trouble remembering which... It might have been Grey Day or Michael Caine or even House of Fun or something like that. But there's just something about it which, you know, sound. Maybe it's in the piano tone because it, it sounds very much like the tone of the piano that was used in all of those classic Madness songs. Mm, mm. To build on you know, what you said about musical, it is musical in its chorus, but it's unexpected in the way it keeps on modulating within the chorus. Yes. It's not just a, you know a jaunty four chords in the same key. It moves around. Right. Well, it's not just the
0: key changes. It's also the tempo changes. Yes. It speeds up, slows down. And very cardiac. Yeah,
1: oh, absolutely. And, and I also appreciate how it sort of starts off with this rhythm, which feels like it's a stomping rhythm. Yes. Got the hi-hat and then a big stomp. Tim Smith you know, joins in in an almost hoarse voice. It's just mm. something so old-worldly about it. And I've got this picture
0: in my head. And if I were a film clip director, I'd say, let's do this to make a film clip. This is just the image that I see in my head, this old-world feel about it. That's essentially the Cardiacs. It sounds to me like on this album, they're paying tribute to the past. They're doing things in their present. They're saying, right, well, we acknowledge that to get to where we are musically now, we acknowledge what has come before and we're twisting it into our vision. And this,
1: I, I have a slightly different view on uh, on that. I think, you know, as mentioned before, they're quite petulant, you know, I've used used the word punky or snotty in a few places, I feel like a lot of this, it doesn't come across necessarily as being reverential of...
0: I didn't say necessarily uh, reverential, but respectful and doing their own thing.
1: Yeah, it doesn't come across as... It comes across as a deliberate cheeky bastardization of that in a lot of ways, in the same way that you mentioned, you know, the young ones as music... Uh, which I doubt you'd find uh, Rick Mayall saying we wanted to you know, pay homage to the great British comedies of the past. It feels very petulant again.
0: Mm, yeah, Look, that's that's true too, but of course they're not acknowledging that this is day one.
1: It feels almost like more of a uh, parody than anything, you know, and it's still uniquely it's very enjoyable in and of itself, but again, it doesn't feel reverential of, oh, the good old days.
0: It can't be about the good old days of your because they didn't live through those days. They would have surely heard their parents' generation's records or their grandparents' generations uh records or tunes that they had identified with and they said All "Right, well you know this is not necessarily bowing down at their feet we love what we do but let's see what we can do with that and maybe make our different spin and look yeah you could make a, a well-argued case either way whether it's a, a finger at or whether it's Uh, some sort of homage but either way to be able to do something different with it you need to understand it and i think that these guys definitely understand what came before them for them to be able to twist it into their own shape Anyway, I think we've probably gone and twisted out of shape everything that we can out of this album. I mean, look, there's another 10 or 11 songs on this album, but this is never about being a track-by-track thing, although maybe we have done a little bit of that. But this is just more to have given you an idea who Cardiacs are or were and why this album, in a way, is maybe their artistic pinnacle. I know that there are a lot of Cardiacs fans who definitely feel that this was... Everything that they'd done before was great. But it led to this. I know that there's a lot of reverence for this album. And even with you know the couple of tracks that don't necessarily appeal to me, I can definitely see why this is a five-star album. This is an album which, sure, you might get the most out of it by listening to it from start to finish but we've also gone and highlighted moments that make it great. But yes, probably this is the sort of thing where you will listen from start to finish and you will need to play it again or you will walk away with your head in frustration thinking, I don't get it, I don't get it. But it's an album that you can't necessarily dispense with. You have to come back to it. You will want to play it again. I know that there's something in there. I want to see what it is. And I, I know that there are a lot of Cardiacs fans out there who this is ingrained into their soul and oh, no. I thank you so much for bringing this music into my life. Uh, because, you know, truth be known, I might have been one of those people who would have thought, yeah, this is too difficult, but because you kept saying, listen to it again. I remember you said to me every time we went out in the car, have you listened to the Cardiacs album yet? Oh, have you listened to the Cardiacs album yet? Well, yeah, I've listened to the first album. Yeah, yeah, play the second album, play the second album. And this is, to me, something that does reward with more and more listenings. And I'm so wrapped in your sense of adventure because you're basically dragging me along with you. And I'm really grateful for that. Thanks, Max. All no right. All right. Well, that uh, pretty much concludes this episode. Thank you very, very much for uh, your wisdom and your thoughts. And
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And uh, we will be doing this again sometime next year so basically now as I mentioned at the beginning of the show the album is part of the Pantheon Network so if you go into your uh, podcast catcher of choice you can either get Love That Album as an individual show so look for Love That Album in your podcast catcher of choice be it in iTunes or You can go to Spotify or Stitcher or even if you have a podcast app like Podcast Addict, just type in Love That Album, we're there. Or you can type in Pantheon Podcasts and you can get everything that's in the Pantheon catalogue and there's some great podcasts there, Rock and Roll Archaeology, uh, Rock and Roll Librarian, Deeper Digs in Rock. There's a terrific show I just caught this week called The Art of Rock where uh, rock photographers talk about album covers or photo shoots that they've done over the years and there's still plenty more that i have to catch up with so uh, i wholeheartedly recommend that you listen to this podcast through either the pantheon podcast network or if you want to go through all the back episodes then you should probably uh, subscribe to love that I'm as a separate entity as well to go check out everything that's come before So I should talk briefly about what is happening next month. So that will be November of 2019. I have invited two previous co-presenters on the show, Shane Pacey, guitarist of the Bondi Cigars will be returning to the program, and Kerry Gately Fristo, who's also done a couple of shows this year with me. They'll both be joining me. We'll be discussing the album by Marianne Faithful, the one that basically gave her a second career, the great album Broken English. There's a lot to be said about this album. It's a very dark album and a long way away from the Marianne Faithful that we knew as the Sweet Chanteuse of the 1960s but a lot of history happened between when she started and when this album arrived and she was a real survivor Uh, a lot of great albums after that but Broken English is the game changer so looking forward immensely to talking about that next month and I think pretty much that's it. So uh, thanks very much for downloading. If this is your first time, I hope you've enjoyed it and continue to listen. If in a long time or even a short time, listener to the program, thanks for your continued patronage. So until next month, please listen to some great music. Go out and buy some records or CDs. And particularly, we urge you, as we said earlier on in the show, if you've liked what we've uh, said about cardiacs and you've liked the little musical clips that you've heard about Cardiacs through the show, go to the Cardiacs website and order a copy of Sing to God. It's going to go and help in Tim Smith's ongoing medical treatment, and it's just great music. So there's a lot of stuff there that you can get if you like Sing to God, what we've spoken about that, or you want to go to any of the earlier stuff. All right, so until next month, be well and all the best. Cheers.